Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined today by my two colleagues, uh, my trusted colleagues, Ryan Sweet. Ryan is the head of uh, of real-time economics. Uh, Ryan, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Mark? Yeah. Are you ever not doing well, Ryan? I mean, no. that's like your standard. I'm fine. You're good. Everything's great. Everything's Except great. For, good. I mean, my two youngest kids are home today. Why? School was can't, oh. closed. Uh, unexpectedly oh. or no, they have like a, a teacher in service day these things pop up from time to time and then right we're scrambling with two screaming little children so right right well yeah you know you're, you're made for that stuff right i try <laughs> yeah i know and i got i got chris chris dorides deputy chief economist hi chris hi mark how are you what happened to your red shirt now your ferrari shirt i'm uh, mixing it up you know I can't really. Green. Tell. You, is that like a pullover? Or what are you wearing today? Like a green? It's a uh, you know. It's got this yeah. uh, hood here. You know? Oh, I oh he's a hoodie. He's got a hoodie. Yeah, hoodie. Okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, and how was your week, Chris? Ah, so far so good. Well, I yeah. guess it's almost over here. So yeah, it's almost almost over. Yeah. Hey, I was in uh, Washington again this week, and I'll have oh. to report that I spent a day there. Uh, traffic is back to normal. I can't tell the difference. Really? Between no. Uh, wow. You know, remember I was there, I don't know, back in July or something, yeah, in yeah. July, and it felt really quiet, dead to me. Ghost uh, town, yeah. <laughs> n- not this time. It was it was happening. And last night, I went to get my hair cut. I had like three hairs on my head, so I got the three hairs cut. Uh, it, so I get my hair cut in Westchester. That's where our office is here out in suburban Philly. And I'll have to tell you, traffic was horrendous. It was horrendous mm-hmm. at 530. Do yeah, they still have that street years. closed down for all the restaurants? No. Oh, is that maybe that was that's open back up? That's back up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, that was open. That was <laughs> yeah, no, that was the the main thoroughfare was open. Yeah. Mm. So, I, I I it just feels like things are coming back to life. Yeah. But uh, mobility's up, right? In our back yeah. to normal index, yep. uh, the mobility's up. And we have a guest today, Emily Mezzacarati. Uh, Emily, good to see you. How are you? Hi, Mark. You? I am good. Thanks. How are you? I'm always good. I'm always good, as you can tell. Uh, so, Emily, you're speaking to us from um, Paris. I am. So it's very much the end of the day here. Week is almost over. <laughs> so that that picture I see behind you—that's just a screen. That's not real life. Then I always have my uh, Berkeley, California background with me. Yes. I was going to say that looks like California. That does not. The look sun like is always shining <laughs> behind <sorry>. me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that does not look like Paris on November twelfth, the twenty twenty one. Yeah, You're it's correct. probably getting pretty it's dark. Yeah, foggy and cold. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Emily, we're very happy to have you here on Inside Economics talking about climate change. That's going to be the big topic for today's discussion. Good timing, right? Uh, COP twenty six didn't that end today? I believe. You can say that. It's supposed to end in a couple of hours, the negotiations. Uh, typically, they run late. But yeah, I was just in Glasgow. So maybe we can talk oh, about that a little great. bit. Oh, great. You were there. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're going to come back to you and really dive into that, really try to get a sense of what came out of that uh, that confab. But uh, it's good to have you. Tell us about yourself, Emily. You joined Moody's uh, when Moody's bought 427, your company, uh, a Berkeley-based company. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, I do want to tell everyone, because I want to speak a little French, I want you to tell me what you think <laughs> of this. You got a master's from of political science from, re, here you go, ready? Institut d'études politiques de Paris. How about that? Is that good? Beautiful. That was awesome. <laughs> I can't do that again, but, you know. Uh, and then you got a master's of public policy at UC Berkeley, which is a great place to get a degree in public policy. That is a wonderful university. Did you ever have uh, Christy Romer? She's, uh, did you ever have her as a course? Economist, yeah, she was so. CEA chair under Obama, Council of Economic Advisors. Did you have her? No? What about no, Robert Reich? Doesn't ring a bell. Yes. Robert, uh, you had Robert yes. Reich? Oh, you did? You overlap with, with Robert Reich, yeah. And uh, what do you think of uh, Dr. Reich? Uh, We're going to get to know your politics right away, right now. <laughs> we, we can nail you. Cards on the table. I, I read in the cab- Into the Cabinet, is that the name of his book? Um, yeah. The summer before I went to, uh, I, I flew to the U.S. and ended up making my life here. Um, and uh, and loved that book. And uh, and I enjoyed the class too. 
Uh, it was yeah, very much about that. politics. The rest of the program was very analytical, economics and, and statistics, which was great and what I was coming for. But I did enjoy the political angle of uh, of what um, Robert Reich was bringing. Yeah, he he's a really good guy. I I get I run across him once a year or so, uh, and it's just always a pleasure to listen to him. He's very very articulate, certainly on issues of income and wealth inequality. I mean, that's really uh, he's very good on that. Well, that's great. Um, and I'm you know I, I I have a link to UC Berkeley. I'm on the board of advisors for the Turner Real Estate Center, so they have a really good set of researchers on you know Californian real estate, obviously uh-huh. you know key. <laughs> Uh, no issue there whatsoever. Yeah, so I'm on I'm I'm on the advisory board there, uh, which uh, let lets me link into Berkeley. I wasn't able to go out to Berkeley this year for that though. Uh, but but anyway, it's great to have you. So tell tell us your backstory, Emily. Tell us about 427, how you started that. Oh, and I should ask, uh, what does 427 mean anyway? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a meaning to that. There is a meaning. So I'm going to, I'm going to backtrack even more before 427. Okay, um, yeah. Did my master's public policy in Berkeley and uh, fell in love with cap and trade while I was doing my master's because why not? Right. Uh, so cap and trade is using markets to reduce carbon emissions by uh, letting the market set the price of where is it most efficient to reduce carbon emissions. Um And I worked on carbon markets, climate policy for uh, a number of years after that uh, for a company that was specialized on forecasting uh, supply and demand for carbon trading instruments. So in Europe, in parts of the U.S., there were carbon markets. And, um, And I was helping translate policy, regulatory and political developments into uh, signals for the markets. Was was the cap and trade bill going to pass and what might it look like? What was going to be the price on that market? What did that then mean for oil and gas sector utilities? Um, which which was good fun for a while until the cap and trade bill um, in, the, in Congress um, mm-hmm. went to hell. That was back in 2010. Um, April 24th, if you want to know when exactly that happened. Um, (laughs) And about the the same, right, still hurting from it. Um, And around the same time, the company that I worked for was uh, was acquired and I uh, I decided it was time to move on, uh, both from uh, from the company that I worked with, but what I was working on, because clearly the U.S. was not committed to climate policy. And again, we're talking 11 years ago. Um, and, and there was a lot of science that was starting to come out around uh, the fact that we had a lot of physical impacts that we were going to experience regardless, that climate change was locked in to a certain extent because we had already put so much emissions in the atmosphere. Um, and so that was the impetus to create for 27. Hmm. Um, I wanted to uh, work on adaptation and the physical uh, climate risk and help businesses, investors, corporates understand what the science was saying and what data was available for them to embed into decisions and risk management. Um, And so long story short, the name for 27 is a reference to California's greenhouse gas emission reduction targets for 2020, so it's it's uh, <laughs> uh, it's 427 million tons of carbon dioxide, which California was going to more than uh, meet, uh, be well below in terms of emissions, except for the wildfires, which put our emissions through the roof again. So uh, physical risk caught up with <laughs> with transition risk. Um, so that was the transition going from doing political policy analysis to uh, helping translate science for um, my clients, who I knew well and I knew what data they needed, um, but much more focused on physical risk. So, so you you started four twenty seven in the what about a decade ago then? Uh, uh, in twenty twelve, yes, twenty twelve. Okay, and, and the, you grew the it into aha a moment. Yeah, the aha moment was actually being in New York right after, right before Hurricane Sandy, and then seeing the aftermath of, uh, of Hurricane Sandy, and uh-huh. seeing the the New York Stock Exchange close for three days, and say, like, 
those people are so smart and they have so much money. How could they not know that there was going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> Something's missing here, right? You, you're mistaken that they're uh, actually correlated things. Uh, just saying. No, <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that for a minute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting. And then you uh, sold 427 to Moody's when? Was it now two years ago or so? Uh, yeah, 2019. So then there was a lot of hard work and people yep. giving us weird looks. Why do you think I should care about climate data? <laughs> and then the world started caring about climate data and including uh, a strong interest from, from Moody's, both from the credit ratings agency uh, part and, yeah, and Moody's sure. analytics. Um, and so uh, sold and then have been uh, working on really integrating climate across everything that we do uh, over the past couple of years now. Right. You, you, as you said, you're now running all of, you're the global head of climate risk solutions for the entire Moody's organization. And, and there's a lot of moving parts here uh, that are all evolving very quickly and you're uh, managing that, uh, that evolution. Lots of moving parts, especially with uh, the recent acquisition of RMS, the cat modeling right. firm, which is uh, adding a ton of capabilities and really sophisticated models on extreme weather events and the uh, financial and uh, economic impacts of those events. So a, a lot of fun work ahead. Yeah, it's great to have you. This is a uh, you know obviously very important uh, for the uh, uh, initiative for Moody's, uh, but uh, you know obviously this is going to be key to driving lots of things going forward. Can I ask before we move on uh, about your name, Maza Karate? Is that a French name? That is not a French name. My grandfather was Italian. Ah, okay. So Chris knew that. Did you know yeah, that, Chris? Yeah, for sure, for sure, oh, for sure. <laughs> so, how would you say Maza Karate? Am I saying it right? What I love is when people ask me in the U.S. how to say Mazzacarelli in French. There's no good answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> that's a, that's a great in one. Italian, it would be Mazzacarelli. Oh, I like that. Yeah. How do you answer that when they say, how do I say it in French? I say the French can't say it either. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's funny. Uh, je ne sais pas. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. They don't know. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, it's so good to have you. Well, uh, before you said you you uh, laid out a lot of things that we want to dive into more deeply in just a few minutes, but uh, as uh, per uh, tradition uh, on Inside Economics, we start with the economic data and statistics or any statistics. I know you you might have some climate statistics you might want to uh, play the, this game with. Uh, we 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 have a game here where we uh, state a statistic and let the other folks try to figure that that statistic out. Uh, I'll have to say I'm probably the best at this game, Emily. <laughs> no, only kidding. Uh, see, Ryan's very quiet. He's very humble. He's second he's, best. I, I'm uh, maybe. Uh, no, I think Ryan is the top dog here. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. All right. Well, well, given that he's the top dog, uh, hey, Ryan, uh, what's your statistic of the week? Well, we have to go with something inflation related because that's top of mind. Okay. So I'm so going to go hint. with, that's a hint, 51%. 51%. Uh, that's not like energy. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Guess. Do you have a guess already? Uh, I was thinking year of year energy, some gasoline. No? Nope. Yeah, because uh, that, I think, go ahead, Mark. Because because you're saying that, Chris, because energy prices saw the biggest increase. Everything rose. Inflation yeah. rose, rose across the board, but most for gasoline energy prices. So you thought maybe that was 51%. And, and Ryan, that's not the answer. No, think outside the CPI report. It's tied oh, to outside? Oh, oh, okay. 51% highest on record. Okay. Does this go back to the NFIB survey, the small business survey? See, Mark's Okay. Mark's National there. Federation of Independent it. Business. Is that the percent of respondents that are raising prices? Very close. Plan to raise uh, prices. Plan to raise prices. Mm -hmm. So th I think okay, that's that a cowbell. I think that's a cowbell. Right <laughs> well, no, wait. He didn't no. say yes. He just yes, kind of no, shaking right. his head. Yeah. Huh? No, you're right. Well, you're right. well come on. Uh, you know, we need some excitement. Cowbell. Come on. Cowbell. Bring out the cowbell. Yeah, no, impressive. 
There you go. I we got a cowbell. a cowbell. We have Emily, a cowbell. Only when I get it right, though, Emily. Not these other guys. <laughs> yeah. Only when I get it right. That's, that's so, actually. okay. All right. So you're saying in the National Federation of Independent Business Small Business Survey, monthly survey, 51% of respondents said that they plan to raise prices. And you're saying that is the highest on record? Yeah. The, the next highest was back in 2008 when we had that big spike in uh, oil prices. But- other than that, this thing is by far, in a way, the highest on record. And the survey goes back to the, uh, the early 1980s. Early 1980s, so mm-hmm. in that high inflationary period. Exactly. Right. Well, let me ask and, you this, Ryan. What do you uh, What do you make of the CPI? At, you know, uh, give us a sense of the. Well, you know, that was a good number, uh, but the you know, the marquee uh, statistic last last week was the release of the consumer price inflation for the United States uh, for October and. It's, tell us about that and, and how you interpret what, what the report is uh, saying. So why I picked the 51% is that it actually does a pretty good job in leading. It's a, a good leading indicator for core inflation. And it suggests that we haven't peaked on a year-over-year basis. You know, we'll likely peak 6% early next year. But the October CPI, like you mentioned before, it, everything rose. I mean, it was across the board. It wasn't just, we talked about before, like the reopening components, lodging away from home, uh, rental car prices, uh, sporting events, things like that, that you know, more likely a one-time event, it's starting to broaden out. I mean, it's, it's really across the board that you're starting to see inflationary pressure. So if you strip out used and new car prices, the reopening effect, energy, the CPI was still up 0.4% uh, month over month, which is an acceleration from what we saw over the last few months. Okay. So let me ask you this. Um, and Chris, I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, what's behind this surge in inflation? Fundamentally, what's going on here? Demand. Demand is just really strong across the board. It's like a release of pendant demand for you know, consumer services, goods. It's all really... Disagree. Totally. Totally right. disagree. Yeah. See what Chris says. I mean, demand... I'd demand say the opposite. Been... Lack of supply. supply. Lack of supply. Lack of yeah. supply. It's not demand. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, what do you say? I don't, I don't want to listen to Brian anymore. Chris. Lack of supply, for sure. Um, yeah, demand is bad. Certainly, you can't. if demand was still low, you wouldn't have it. But um, right now, why we're seeing the surges is the supply side, for certain, for certain, right? Energy, all the goods, supply chain effects, ports, everything is, is so you, backed you're still up. buying into the cost push inflation? It's shortages. I mean, I can't yeah. buy a car. There's 75,000 cars on a dealer lot because they can't produce cars because of a, a chip shortage, because Malaysian chip plant sh- shut down because of Delta. I mean, d- you're right. Dem- demand, uh, you know, if demand was weak, uh, you wouldn't see inflation. And demand for goods in particular has been strong. For services, it's still below pre-pandemic levels by orders of magnitude. So, you know, but it's picking d- up. and the other thing I'd point out is demand growth really slowed because of Delta. You know, GDP growth, obviously that's uh, more than uh, just uh, demand, but a uh, big part of it's demand, consumption. That that was much weaker uh, in the third quarter because of Delta. No? I mean, it's Am I probably, convincing you? No? No, not at all. I think, I mean, oh. it's most likely a combination. I think there's some supply issues still going on that's contributing to it. But if you look, maybe you can explain to me how uh, supply chain issues are causing uh, sporting mission prices to go up 8% month over month? I'll, t- I'll tell you, here's how I would answer that question. The answer to that question is the Delta wave of the, of the pandemic. Because the Delta wave of the pandemic uh, did s- uh, significant damage to global supply chains and to the U- uh, labor markets. So on the supply chain side, and, and because Delta was particularly hard on Asia, Southeast Asia, where all the supply chains begin, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we see shortages for vehicles and furniture and, you know, you name the product. And it's demand destruction. They can't sell because there's no supply and shortages and higher prices. And then, of course, it scrambled the labor market. Uh, more people got sick, uh, uh, couldn't go to work, uh, took care of sick people, uh, fearful of getting sick. So you had all these open positions, particularly in what you just, the industry you just articulate, recreational activities, leisure and hospitality, uh, personal services. So you, that's where you're seeing the wage growth. That's where the wage growth has been strongest. 
because people just haven't been going back to work and uh, because of the uh, of the Delta wave. And, uh, you know, the uh, businesses in those industries are passing that along to consumers. So in my mind, the fundamental reason for the acceleration in inflation, you know, to the degree that we've observed is the Delta wave. It's a supply shock. It nailed demand, you know, it, it hurt uh, demand and it it's uh, caused inflationary pressures to develop. A very classic kind of supply shock. I was on board with that whole argument for the last several months, but now in October, you're starting to see signs that it's not just supply, it's also demand pull. No. Look at look Where? at owner's equivalent rent. I mean, rent- Oh, no, rent, rent, rent growth, I, th- that's supply and demand, but actually Correct. it's more, more supply than demand, but we can go back to that. But what else? I mean, other than rent growth? Because I agree, rent growth is going to accelerate. No, I mean, everything's going to start to decelerate soon. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, the pandemic didn't, repeal the law of demand. I mean, demand is going to start to weaken in response to these higher prices. So is your argument uh, inventory build uh, on the part of businesses? Is that the demand you're citing? That the extra or the accelerated demand is no, folks wanting lean. to... Yeah, inventories are really, really lean. Like you, you can't get a car, right? But also if you look at container traffic going through the port of Long Beach, it's significantly higher than it was in 2019. So that's you know, that's not a supply, necessarily a supply issue. They just can't process at the the amount of demand there is for these containers. Look, that's a supply yeah. issue. <laughs> <laughs> look, 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 here. All, you know, it's like looking at the stars and trying to come up with a unified theory of what's going on with the stars. And the, the best explanation, and maybe it's wrong, I don't know, but it's the, the best explanation for what's going on here is the Delta wave. It scrambled supply chains, it scrambled... Uh, labor markets. Uh, it, it's also affected the, the uh, composition of demand, which is also important, right? Because you mm-hmm. it, it, it jacked up the demand for stuff, you know, vehicles and furniture, and you know my everything I got on my back deck out here, and uh, and uh, nailed a ser- a demand for services. A total demand, total consumer spending. That's still not even quite back to where you would have thought it would be if there was no pandemic. Overall demand. Right. Overall demand. Right. So the composition Service. is, but but it's about the delta wave, and it, but but this is really important, right? Because this will this gives you a sense of where inflation is headed. If if you buy into my theory of inflation, my you know looking into the stars theory of inflation, that says okay, the delta wave is now fading, assuming the pandemic continues to fade. Then the worst of the inflationary pressures are at hand. You know, maybe it lasts another month or two. I don't know because. Yeah. You know, it takes a while to unscramble things, but by early next year, we should see definitive signs of inflation moderating. Yeah, if that, if my that. theory is I agree right. with you. Yeah, I agree. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I think we just disagree. I think I'm, I would argue that you're starting to see more demand pull inflation, but it's temporary. It's, a, you know, people aren't going to, it's, there's a lot of pent up demand for restaurants and going to sporting events. You know, that we'll get through that. We'll work through that pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, Emily, you want to settle this? <laughs> no, but I'll throw in the statistics if you want to try to get. Yeah, 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 yeah. Far away. Yeah. Are you All changing right. subjects on us though? I am. Uh, I am changing uh, subject. I'm, I'm getting a little closer to my heart. Um, not that I don't care about it. Okay, but, but okay. <laughs> can I ask before you before we go to the, if you're going to change subjects because it might be because you're I'm guessing you're going to go to climate change right on your on your statistics. That's a wild guess, but you're yes. Uh, you're so okay, <laughs> so why don't you wait because that's a good okay. segue into our conversation around climate issues, and we, let's just finish this conversation around uh, around the. Well, inflation in the statistics. So I'm going to turn to Chris next. Chris. All right. Do you have an inflation statistic? Yes. Okay. Fire. Is it support my view or Ryan's view? Uh, it, is, it supports, uh, it actually supports Emily's view. Oh, okay. All right. okay. <laughs> it's got a, it's got a climate change uh, factor in it. That's oh, it does. It. Okay, fire, yeah. okay. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Fire away. So Ryan's complained that I make these too easy. So this one, I, I uh, dug into the bowels. So you get what you ask for, Ryan. Uh, 2.1 and 5.6%. All right. Year over year or month over month? Both. One is month over month. One is year over year. 2.1. tied to climate change? Well, I'm going to tie it to climate change. Oh. It's an inflation. Somehow so those are two inflation so Energy prices? Yeah, it's got to No, not energy. Not energy. The PPI or CPI? A CPI. 
And it is the price for, you're talking about the change in the price for some good or service. Right, Chris? Yes. Yes. You're not allowed, yes, you're not allowed to take a drink in the middle of your question. So Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, and you were drinking Wawa coffee. Is that that was a hint, by the way. Uh, sorry? Go ahead. Oh, that was a hint. <laughs> Are you? Oh, that's why you drink a drink. Okay. Oh, coffee prices? Coffee. Yeah. Yes, roasted coffee. Up 2.1% in one month. He picked that oh, because wow. he's complaining that wow. you know, his costs Five are going up. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Inflation's personal. That's one. Uh, so yeah, that's part of it. Uh, but there, the, the reasons why coffee prices have gone up are twofold. One is supply chain effects, right? The other is uh, climate change related. Uh, Brazil had a terrible season of a drought and a flood, yeah. um, or drought and frost. And so they've uh, cut production. And then Vietnam, who's the second biggest producer of coffee, uh, has supply chain issues, right? So, so you got everything. Yeah, that's a good one. So, so coffee prices were up two point one percent October over September, and they were up five point six something over the year. Five point six, yeah. And it's going to get worse actually, because those are the consumer prices, but the uh, producer prices, the, the the commodity price is up a hundred percent. Just it just uh, accelerated today. Actually, we're up uh, substantially. And, and that's just the trend because coffee is one of those crops that are very much at threat from changing exactly. precipitation and weather patterns and uh, pests and drought and you name it, right? Exactly, exactly. Right, right. Uh, that it's all related. Did, I still, all did related. I steal your punching line? No, no, <laughs> that was all good. good. That was I can good. see you gave that some thought. That, that, was, really you know, good. that was a really good one. On my um, way to Wawa, yeah. <laughs> okay, I got another... Inflation, the CPI inflation one. This one, this one's, you know, I'm. This might be a little hard, so you feel free to quiz me. Three point one percent, and it's two different statistics that are three point one percent. And now that I just said that, I forgot oh. what one of the statistics are. Hold on one second. <laughs> oh, okay. I, now I remember. Go ahead. What's I know one of the. I know a three point one percent. I don't know if it's yours, but that's. Oh uh, really? Owner, okay. Go ahead. Owner owner's equivalent rent. Was that it's up three point one percent? Three point one year over year. Year over year. Oh, okay. That so there's three three point one percent in the report. Okay. Oh, and this is an important. Going back to Ryan's point, Ryan, was I too hard on you? When, no, when you're I, never too hard. No, on me. we're good. Okay, <laughs> you're still my friend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's go back to uh, uh, rent growth and the acceleration there. Did you want to, Chris, talk about that? What, what's going on with rent growth? So rent growth also, oh, what, uh, two points, I have no here, 2.7% year over year, right? So point, both uh, were up 0.4% month. I'm sorry, month. 3.1 was what then? 3.1 was owner's, owner's equivalent rent. Oh, I see. And then Rents rent are 2.7. 2.7. So. Owner's equivalent is uh, rent of uh, homes. The equivalent, uh, uh, how this, the uh, BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics measures, the cost of owning a home is through the implicit rent that the, that the homeowner would pay, and that's called homeowner's equivalent rent, and that was up three point one percent year over year. And, and and if you rent your home, that was up two point seven percent. Right, rent year. to a tenant, okay. and it's uh, right, two point right. seven. Okay. That's right. So anyway, pretty close to each other. Up, uh, both were up 04 percent in the month, though. Right, so that's that's a healthy gain. That's accelerating. Um. Those month, those year over years are still though not at the level that we had prior to the pandemic, right? So you see things increasing here, and they will continue to increase in terms of the uh, rate of change. But because prices have been going up, but it, ha- it hasn't uh, fully caught up. So I see this okay, certainly that- as a tailwind going forward. Yeah, and on the on this, I would argue. I mean, it's, it's always demand and supply when it comes to price. But when it, mm-hmm. when we're talking about rank growth, did you want to say that again? It's always the dem- Demand. Yeah. Okay. I just want to point that out. I, I did say that. I did say that. I mean, it, we wouldn't have these price increases if demand was weak. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sure. But even on the rent growth, that's more. I would consider that to be more a supply side issue than a demand side issue. That the uh, supply of new housing, both for rent and for sale, has been very constrained post financial crisis for more than a decade since the housing bust. We just have not been putting up enough homes to meet even the weak demand that existed early on in the period after the financial crisis. And so vacancy rates have continued to decline. And I think vacancy rates across across the housing stock for rent and for sale together 
is pretty close to an all-time low. And I, and I consider that a supply side issue. Mm-hmm. Do you, Chris? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Right. And demand now, factors in there too, Ryan. So yeah, it does. absolutely. Yeah. And it may be because <laughs> yeah, the pandemic- so the housing ca- you can consume, right? <laughs> so it is a supply issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a demand component in the sense that uh, with, the pandem- with the pandemic winding down, I think you've seen households form, right? A lot of people double, you know, millennials doubled up when the pandemic was raging. They or they went back to their parents' home, and now they're striking out and they rent, whatever generally as opposed to buy. So you have seen some pickup in demand, but it's bumping up against very, very you know limited supply, and you get these rent increases yep. and price increases. Okay, so yet another three point one. I do. I've got all. two more, actually. I've got two more. They're, they're, well, they're the difficult. One. They're difficult, but they're, I think, instructive. I picked them for you know reasons of instruction. You've got so, it, Ryan? You got one? I think I got one. Oh, what's that? Uh, rental car prices. They were up 3.1%. No, month, my, these the are, month. that's a good one, though. But I, no, no, the, the, what I, this, I'll give you, so going back to what Chris said a little bit ago about, you know, we're just getting catching back up to, you know, inflation's pre-pandemic. So there was a period, you know, a year ago when prices were getting cut or inflation was very low. So to some degree, what economists call a base effect is influencing these numbers, right? So mm-hmm. is that as a hint, what do you think 3.1% is? Oh, the, is the, the, the change in the CPI from two years ago? Exactly. Core CPI, core, core CPI. Uh, CP, consumer price inflation, X food and energy, which economists focus on because that's the best predictor of future inflation. That is up 3.1% on an annualized basis over the past two years, October. So take October this year, the bad number, compared to October 2019, calculate the average annual growth and it's 3.1%, right? And in my mind- Still high. Still, yeah, still high. But in my mind, that's reality. That That's where inflation okay. actually sure. is. Sure. Sure. Right. I don't know. Ryan, would you agree with that? Yeah, statement? I would agree with that. Okay. So 3.1 in target CPI inflation, you know, where the Fed wants it, I'd say is as high as two and a half percent. Right? Correct. So we're 60.6 percentage points, 60 basis points off. Even in this hair on fire, you know, inflation is high, I'd say 3.1. So that's my with three point. I'll give you there's one more 3.1. You'll never get this. <laughs> Should I tell you what it is? Just give us a hint. No, here, I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. It comes from the Cleveland Fed. Ryan might get this. Oh, the median or trim? Oh, you got it. Median. Median. The median inflation rate. So this is kind of cool. Cleveland Fed has a website. They publish different measures of inflation. That's one of the things Cleveland Fed focuses on is inflation. You tote up all the goods and services, look at across all the products and services, and there's a, I don't know how many of the track, Ryan, do you know the BLS? How many did they release? Not off the top of it. It's a lot. Hundreds. A lot, yeah. Then they uh, calculate the the growth uh, in uh, in prices over the past year, and they look at the uh, price of the uh, product or services that's in the middle of that distribution, the median. Mm -hmm. And the median CPI increase is- 3.1%. Which also gives me confidence that, you know, we're, you know, we're going to go back in here pretty quickly. So if you were in Powell's shoes, would you start raising interest rates sooner? Absolutely not. You know, what I would do, what I would do. No, no, no. Because you got to, you got to, this is a supply shock that has not affected inflation expectations. Therefore, I should be focused on the growth aspect of the supply shock. I should be thinking about how do I get this economy back to full employment? If inflation expectations started to rise, I'm with you, you know, then, uh, here's one thing I'll say though, on in that regard, uh, I could be wrong. Yeah, I could be wrong. Uh, but I'm and if with I'm you. wrong to to guard against that possibility, I would start if I were him, guiding the market to uh, their their expectations for a rate increase sooner than the markets has been expecting now. So right now, the market, or at least before the CPI report, the market was expecting two twenty five basis point increases in the federal funds rate beginning sometime this time next year. Is that the same, Ryan? Do you know? Have they- no, it's up to three now. It's up to three. So that's exactly what I would do. You know, and I would ratify that if I were him. I'd say, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Maybe even four, you know, you know, kind of bring it forward, you know, a little bit. No, that's what I would do. They, you, yeah. can't, you can't pull the trigger too soon. 
Well, do you agree with that? Well, yeah, I, I was I was saying I was shocked because you have a tendency to lean a little bit more hawkish. Oh, I do. But yeah, don't you agree, Chris? That. I'm Over the years, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, usually like, we're a little bit more hawkish. Maybe relative to you guys, you guys are flaming doves, you know, flaming doves, flaming doves. <laughs> there, there, we got our title. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got our title. Now we got to find. Emily, we'll you'll know, we'll we'll fill you in on what that means a little later. But we have to come up with a pithy title: "Flaming Doves." That's a good one. Yep. All right. Okay, we got to move on. Uh, Emily, what's your statistic? All right, um, it is seven percent. Seven percent, and it's related to climate change. Uh, is this something like oh, I, I recently? I or? I'm, oh, I'm going to guess. Okay. I'm going to guess. Get the cowbell out, Brian. There's no way you're getting this one. <laughs> On the first shot. 7% of the world's population is at a high risk of some type of physical event. <gasps> You're way below, way. We have like way percent of the population at risk of oh flood. So really? no, no, no. I'm going to, I'm going to guide you a little closer. It's more related to energy and <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's an economic statistic. Okay. 7% of, uh, electricity, uh, uh, production comes from wind. No? That, um, I wish Maybe. I had that number. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> so She's thinking, you're that could be closer. right, but that's not what yeah. I'm thinking. Is this a growth rate? <laughs> may or may not be right. <laughs> Is it a growth rate? Um, it's, um, no, it's a, it's a percent of, uh, of a, it's a, of a stable thing, um, but look okay. on the uh, look on the dark side is my hint here. Uh, look on the dark side. Oh my goodness! I can feel that I feel she, I, Emily goes dark very quickly. That's what uh, Ryan. You got any ideas here? Any oh. any any clues? Can you give us another clue without giving it away, Emily? Or are we? Should we give sure. up? Should we say no? Uncle? No, no, no. Okay, is it a global I'll, I'll you, or regional statistic? It's oh. global. It's a global statistic, and okay. it has to do with subsidies. Okay, I almost gave it away, but not completely. <laughs> oh, subsidies! Is that is really is that the total fiscal uh, subsidy provided by governments for climate risk mitigation? No, <laughs> or for fossil I wish. fuel. I w- <laughs> oh, yeah, really? It's fossil fuel. Oh, crap. Uh, fossil fuel. got it. Yeah. So what is that's it? The global total fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, uh, per the IMF for 2020. So that's $5.9 trillion globally. And in the US, I believe the number is 20 billion a year. So we're, you know, behind China, Saudi Arabia, and Iran in terms of how much money we put into uh, fossil fuels. But it's just like, you know, how much do we want to shoot ourselves in the foot (laughs) when it comes to climate change? 7% of what? Of GDP or 7% of? Yeah. Yeah, of global GDP. <gasps> that is a am- yeah. that's an that's amazing huge. statistic. Yeah. Wow. And is that is it going down or is, do you know? Is it changing? Uh, I don't not in a meaningful fashion. Certainly not in the US. Um probably going up, if anything. Um, so if your next question is how are we doing with the climate negotiation at COP? Yeah, that would be my next question. You'll know why let's move into the big topic. How are we doing? <laughs> Well, think about it, right? So there's so much at stake for the uh, for the fossil fuel industry, um, not just the not just the subsidies, but also their ability to function and sell. There are more uh, there are more representatives from the fossil fuel industry than government at uh, COP right now. Now, granted, mm-hmm. those representatives from the fossil fuel industry are not in the room drafting the language from the final agreement themselves. Um, but that gives you a flavor for, for what's going on. Um, so the negotiations are making progress. We're expecting at time of recording, they're supposed to finish up in about an hour and a half. I don't think that's going to happen. They usually stop the clock, as we say, and, and run long over the weekend. Um, they're supposed to agree on how we're going to reach the Paris um, Agreement target. So how we're going to reduce emissions enough that we can keep global warming to well below two degree is the Paris language, uh, preferably to 1.5 Celsius degrees. So that's the global temperature increase. Um, and there is something about reducing fossil fuel <laughs> and reducing uh, subsidies. But 
I'm not sure it's going to be quite as uh, biting <laughs> as uh, mm. as we need to really reduce emissions. You, you uh, said you were there. You you attended COP26. I, you know, sideshow, not part of the negotiations, but there's a lot of people who get together around the negotiation on the fringes, uh, the off festival, if you want. Um, lots of conferences where we talk about the future of the world, how the financial markets are integrating climate risk and uh, what are the big topics. So it's it's also a big event uh, for people who care about climate, even if we're not in the room arguing over where the comma should go in that sentence. <laughs> so let me ask, coming out of that, do you feel more hopeful or 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 not uh, regarding the, the, the world's commitment to addressing this, uh, this issue? Oh, so it's a hard question. Um, I'm hopeful with some of the improvements and, and momentum that's uh, been created around this specific uh, year's COP. So uh, Mark Carney, former chair of the Bank of England and of the FSB, has been pushing financial markets a lot um, to get uh, banks and investors and corporations to take commitments to reduce their emissions to what we call net zero. So it's take them down as far as you can. And for the things that you really can't abate, you're allowed to buy offsets or to make up for those emissions otherwise. But um, and there's been a big take up in the in the market, uh, dozens of you know the largest banks and investors on the market, tons of corporations, including uh, Moody's as a as a corporation or our employer, um, committing to reduce emissions to zero essentially by 2040, 2050, depending on who you talk to. So that's really impressive. And that has given me hope in a way that I hadn't had in a long time, to be frank. Um, but what I still find concerning is I'm not sure we're seeing the same level of commitments from governments to really reorient their policy and uh, economic systems, including subsidies and all the other things that governments can do um, to reduce emissions. So there's still a, a lot of politics and a lot of protecting economic interests, um, short-term economic interests over long-term welfare of the world. Mm, okay. So um, is that a really a big deal, though, going back to financial institutions going to net zero? I mean, it's not like financial institutions produce a lot of CO2. So, I mean, I, I know for each company, it, it, it takes effort and energy and you have to be focused on accomplishing that. So I'm not diminishing that, that accomplishment, but in the grand scheme of things, that can't be that important really, is it? Well, that's, that's a great question. So that's what's interesting about those commitments is this isn't about whether a bank is going to be able to change their light bulbs and buy only renewable electricity, because I'm with you. I don't care. I mean, I care a little bit, but no, that's not where the, where the stakes are. It's about whether their portfolios are aligned with the Paris commitments with those net zero targets. And so what this means is that every bank and every investor becomes the cop. <laughs> they becomes, are chasing oh, their clients, their lenders, their uh, investing corporations to um, help them or incentivize them or scare them into actually taking and delivering on those net zero targets. So are you and, saying, and, just so I make sure I have this right, you're saying that I'm a bank, I'm lending to all these different companies and households, and I'm looking at their carbon footprint, and I'm I'm changing my pricing and my underwriting decisions so that uh, my lending uh, uh, to these institutions uh, will result in net zero. If I look at my portfolio, that it, it's driving that the carbon uh, emissions to net zero for that portfolio. Is that what you're saying? That That is exactly right. And um, we're not completely there yet in terms of banks changing their pricing policy uh, or where we're starting to see those signals where banks or investors might um, move just pass on a real estate deal, for example, where they feel that the building is so carbon intensive, there's no way it's going to get net zero. And they're really trying to uh, focus their, their assets on 
doing that transition. And so there, there's a, the sort of an easy and not so great approach, which is ditching everything that's carbon intensive. And that's not great because not everyone on the market thinks about net zero and carbon emissions. So that just means you're going to have a two-tiered market with a number of institutions holding all the dirty <laughs> business and then the you know global uh, institutions looking good holding only green and clean businesses. Um, the better approach is for them to work with uh, their clients uh, and help them, including with financing, uh, help them transition and reduce their emissions. I, that's an interesting uh, idea. It just doesn't feel like it's going to work, uh, <laughs> right? Because financial institutions are motivated, like all businesses, by returns, and they're going to lend to where they get the highest returns, their returns, their own returns for their own balance sheet. So what's the mechanism, the incentive, the economic rationale for them to actually do this other than you know getting brow beaten by you know uh carney or you know some other you know government agency yeah so you know peer pressure regulation customer expectations not to be understated um you know survival of the species comes to mind as one of the drivers and i know it <laughs> okay, doesn't usually right. factor in economic okay, decisions okay. Yeah. but we've actually come to the point where some of the largest banks are, are making it a policy because they will tell you, you know, what's the point of climate stress testing my portfolio for a four degree world? We're just one function. <laughs> so um, it's, it's also a way to manage their own risk because right now it's a voluntary commitment that they're taking, but there is an expectation that at some point, probably too late and therefore probably too fast, governments will take action and then it will become required. And if they have to do it, fast, it's going to be really brutal and and impact and uh, and uh, create a lot of stress on the uh, economy. Interesting. So you're saying they're going to prepare for the possibility that they have to actually, they're required by their own regulators or central banks to price for CO2, the CO2, the, the carbon footprint of their clients, of their customers, of their, of their borrowers. And if they're, if they're not preparing for that now, then they will get wrong footed. They'll have a problem you know, down the road. Right. And also, if you believe that we need to address climate change, then at some point we need to transition away from fossil fuel. And for those who haven't, it's they're going to be left holding the bag. But Emily, um, you know, so there's self-interest there. <laughs> yeah, but you, you told your statistic was seven percent uh, that seven uh, percent of GDP, global GDP goes to subsidizing fossil fuels, and that has not changed appreciably. That's you know, why in the world do we think that? Uh, Governments are then going to turn around and tell their banking and financial institutions, you've got a price for CO, uh, the CO2 emissions for carbon footprints. I mean, does that sound realistic? Do you think that's, you, do you believe, do you buy into that? Do you really think that's going to happen? But that's, that's why I have mixed feelings. I mean, again, we yeah. go back to survival of the species, right? We got to do something and yeah, it's going to cost money. Um, but the stakes are so big that it is actually worth it. Do I believe that the governments that are in the room right now making decisions that they have to deal with and implement are going to do everything that needs to be done? That's, you know, we're humans and, and fallible. And, uh, and yeah. no, they might not get to it. And, and then to your earlier question, is this going to turn into a giant greenwashing party where everybody says they're going to make those commitments? And they're like, yeah, we'll worry about it in 2049. Uh, for that 2050 target, um, so you know this is where this is where my job comes in as uh, provider of, of data, market intelligence, and so trying to provide transparency, um, trying to help with accountability with uh, banks, investors, governments understand what companies are doing. Um, but at the end of the day, everybody needs to do their piece, and it yeah. goes against short-term economic self-interest. So yeah, that's see, the I, challenge. I, I'm an economist, right? I have a hard time getting my mind that that's going to work. I mean, I, can, I hear you. Uh, but let me ask you this. Why, if we're going to, as an economist, feels like to me the most straightforward way to address climate change is just price carbon. Just, you know, you did cap and trade, but why not just a carbon tax? I mean, that's kind of easy, right? We That's really easy to implement. We know how to do it. It generates a boatload of revenue. It's going to affect you know, CO2 emissions. We could take that revenue, 
give it back to individuals, particularly low-income households, because I understand it will be regressive kind of tax. I mean, low-income households will suffer more because they consume more of their uh, uh, more of their uh, uh, of their uh, cons- consumption goes to you know energy-intensive kinds of, uh, of spending. But why, if, if we're going to s- expend all this political energy on something like getting the financial institutions to price for uh, for CO two emissions, why wouldn't we just go to the most obvious thing and pass carbon taxes? I am entirely with you. Spent five years of my life writing reports about the intricacies of the politics and the market dynamics of cap and trade. And yes, please give me a tax. It's so much easier. Uh, the politics are not so good in the, in the U.S. So cap and trade was, you know, in economic terms, it's supposed to be even better than a tax because then you have the perfect marginal uh, yeah cost of reducing emissions and the market sorts itself out and you get Brazil to stop burning the forest and that allows others to continue doing certain things. In practice, it's a mess (laughs) and we still didn't get it through Congress. So back to square one, can we please have a tax? Well, let me ask you a question. I know Canada, there's examples around the world, but Canada is the one that comes to my mind. Uh, They have a carbon tax, right? And how is that? Do you have any sense of how that's working? If that's been any successful in getting CO two emissions down, um, or do I have that wrong? Last I checked, I so last I checked, there was a, sort of a carbon tax in Alberta. The Canadian government strikes me as you know, like Australia, like the U.S., um, one of those countries that's been just flip flopping uh, from one election to the next. Yes, we're serious about climate change. No, we really don't believe in it. Don't care. Um, let's pour more subsidies into oil and gas. So, um, would you see any dis- you know discernible effects? Not necessarily. The problem with cap and trade. Uh, is that governments meddle with the rules so much that the price stays very low, and so that defeats the purpose? <laughs> yeah. um, Let me ask you quite another question. This is uh, this is more parochial uh, because uh, uh, we're in the in the in economics. Uh, uh, we produce lots of scenarios, uh, lots of forecasts, and uh, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is define the climate risk assumptions that go into our, you know, baseline worldview. So, you know, we say, here's what we think the economy is going to do across all the different countries of the world, different regions of the world. Uh, We have all kinds of assumptions around monetary policy, fiscal policy, the pandemic, obviously. Chris does a lot of work trying to understand the epidemiology of the the pandemic and what that means, you know, vaccines. So we got a lot of assumptions, but so far, uh, historically, we've had uh, implicitly climate risk assumptions, but not explicit ones. So we are making it clear what are the underlying climate risk assumptions that we're using in our worldview, in our forecasts. And one of the key assumptions that we've been debating is around where, and again, this is the baseline. So this is the most likely scenario. And the, there's a, a distribution of possible outcomes pretty wide here, but in the middle of the distribution, what is the temperature rise going to be? And as you pointed out, under the Paris Accord back, I guess it was six years ago, there was a commitment to get to uh, to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, and if we did that, then we kind of dodged the most significant bullets here around climate risk. Right now, our thinking is, well, 1.5 seems like un- not a baseline kind of forecast. So we're thinking somewhere between two to two and a half degree Celsius increase, which, you know, we're going to, if, if that's the case, we're going to see some significant problems related to climate risk. What do you, do you have a view on that? I mean, do, can you get, help us out here? What do you, what do you think? If you were in our shoes thinking about that, and by the way, this is important for our forecast because to get to whatever degree, because uh, this affects, you know, property loss and uh-huh. chronic physical risk and, you know, affects a lot of different things that were that are key to the economic outlook, and, productivity, yeah. yeah, so forth and so on. Uh, so, um, uh, what do you, what, if you were in our shoes, how how would you think about this? What what, what would you your assumption be? Yeah, so I have a view and I have data too. Um, oh, great! So okay, that's perfect. I believe right now we're on track, business as usual, at best, uh, towards two point seven, which is really high. 
And even that is the median, because when you look at the full range, we don't know exactly, right? So we're still learning the science of how greenhouse gas drive different impacts around the world and how quickly uh, we are warming. We're actually warming than we, th than we thought because we're melting the uh, ice sheet where there's all kinds of things that are reinforcing the warming. So uh, 2.7, 3.1, um, that's, the, that's the business as usual baseline that uh, probably should be factoring in. And that comes with a lot of impacts in terms of physical risk. Um, some of those are easier to model than others, right? So you're looking at, and, and I know your teams do that very well, but uh, looking at uh, impacts on real estate prices from sea level rise, looking at impacts on productivity and uh, agricultural uh, outputs from uh, chronic uh, change in temperature. And, and some of these other impacts are harder to forecast because uh, when you look at extreme weather events, we know that we're going to get more hurricanes and that they're, well, we know we're going to get hurricanes that are more intense, not necessarily more of them. We don't know when, we don't know where they're going to hit. We don't know how big they're going to are. So that's harder to forecast. And then there's all the secondary impacts that um, we're not even looking at right now in terms of water stress. How is that going to affect the California and the Texas economy? Is California going to continue to produce as much agricultural products? What does that mean for local real estate markets when all the water dries off and we stop producing <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. food and ag and, and um, beverage, also a big industry? Data centers need a lot of water. Um, what happens crypto, when you get more migration? Crypto, crypto producers, right? right? They need a lot of electricity, right? Chris knows this. Chris is a, is a very avid crypto uh, miner and trader. <laughs> Only green crypto, though. Only, Only green. green. <laughs> His, his carbon footprint is really, uh, you know, Emily. I need. You want, you want to get the world's <laughs> carbon footprint down? You got to focus on Chris. Just focus on him. <laughs> You'll get a call from me on Monday, Chris. Um, no, but you get the picture, right? Business yeah. as usual looks bad in terms. Well, when of you say business risk. as usual, that means no change in policy, no change in technology. Is that business as usual for you? Yeah, so that means continuing what we do the yeah, way right. we do it, pretty much. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then you add the scenarios where we actually get our act together soon or we get our act together late. And when it's late, then we need to do a lot more faster. And that's where all hell break loose in terms of the impacts, the economic impacts. So there, there is an economic benefit to making those decisions, even if they have those short-term costs on carbon, because you're avoiding a lot of impacts and economic costs long-term. And that goes back to what Mark Carney uh, coined that expression, the tragedy of the horizon, right? Mm. We know climate change is coming, but it's out of the economic and financial horizon. And therefore, yep. it's easier to make decisions today that make money. And even if don't, <laughs> they, they don't address the long-term issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but your baseline for uh, assumption can't be one point, uh, excuse me, 2.7 to 3.1 degrees Celsius, because you've got to be assuming, I think, uh, some policy response, some technological advance. I mean, the, you know, people are focused on how do I mitigate uh, CO2 uh, in the in environment. And there's all kinds of new technologies that are being worked on and got to assume that something is going to have some impact here. So if you were us, would you would you settle on 2731 or would something lower than that? Um, you know, 27 is reasonable given okay. what we see. If you want to be a little more optimistic and you look at all the net zero commitments that have been taken recently, um, I yep. think we're at 1.9 or 1.8. So that's that's a lot better. That's still a lot of physical impacts, but uh, yep. certainly gets us closer to the to the 1.5 target. Okay. Chris, you, you, what is your sense of this, Chris Dorides? I mean, because I know you've been thinking about this uh, in terms of the underlying assumptions. Have you come to any kind of view in, uh, on this issue? Uh, well, my view is that it's complicated. Certainly, yeah, right. a lot of numbers uh, get thrown around, and even yeah. you know, there's a lot that uh, that forecast of what happens under current policies. There's there's quite a range, right? Two point seven. There's three point one, three point two. We've been using the uh, NGFS. That's the Network for Greening of the Financial System scenarios. These were published last uh, June basically doing a weighted average of those uh, various forecasts. So under under that set of scenarios, the no policy action is actually assuming 
or 3.2 degrees Celsius increase mm, yeah. um, by the end of 2100. And the other scenarios basically get you to 1.7, 1.8, right? So the way I've been thinking of it, I kind of flip the coin and say, either we're going to go down the path of no change, right? <laughs> or we're going to do something, some mix of policy and technology. I don't know what that mix looks like. So I settle on 50-50 <laughs> between, you know, we, we don't do anything and we do something. And that gets you to two point. Um, five degrees Celsius. So that's that's how I've been thinking about it, but that's a very naive uh, type of view. Yeah. Hey, Emily, so we're working on this right now. Would you mind if we kind of connect uh, with you on this and just get your perspective once we nail? We, yeah, we nail no, of course. <laughs> you should see the email chain between Chris, I, and <laughs> Gaurav Ganguly, who's our, our uh, economist in Europe, and Chris Lafakis and Brisson, Mike Brisson. It's like, I can't keep track of, uh, of the email uh debate about yeah this. no please please happy to yeah. uh, happy okay. to join in <laughs> hey a um, couple quick questions kind of lightning round because i know we're running out of time uh on uh 427 now part of moody's so 427 <clears throat> the name has been retired part of moody's but you're do still doing the same kind of scoring of of different types of physical risks uh, you know everything from flooding to sea level rise to whatever tornadoes o also other uh, non climate related, right? Like earthquakes and that kind of thing, I believe. Uh, of all the different risks that you're scoring, which is the hardest to score uh, to get a grip on? Oh, that's I a mean, great question. The, yeah. Um, I So I thought you were going to ask what's the most important one. Well, and, okay. Uh, no, that's, that's, so, okay. No, that's no, even no, better question. And they're, and they're yeah, kind yeah. of related, right? Yeah. Um, so Wet, wet risk, as, uh, as our friends at RMS calls them, um, floods, uh, sea level rise, uh, so fluvial, pluvial, coastal floods, so floods from uh, rivers spilling out, floods from too much rain, floods from the uh, the oceans rising, and, and storm surges in particular during hurricanes. Um, it's the biggest risk. It's also where you need the most sophistication in really digging deep uh, to understand the, the dynamics of how water is going to move and uh, when and how long it's going to stay. And, uh, and, uh, and that's also where we have the greatest exposure globally. Uh, I mentioned earlier, right, 30% uh, of the population um, globally has exposure to flood. You've got entire regions in, uh, in Asia Pacific. You've got the East Coast in the U.S. that's super exposed. Uh, and also a lot of uncertainty because sea level rise is happening faster than we'd like in many ways. And it's also one of those risks where even if we fix, you know, even if we go to 1.5, 1.8, um, there's a number of processes that are in play that we may not be able to stop. And so sea level rise, we might just need to live with. And that's going to mm. redefine the coastlines um, over over many decades and, and centuries, but it's really going to change the um, the maps and and where we live, where humanity lives on the planet. Right. Well, one last question. Uh, Build back better. This is the piece of legislation that's uh, in Congress now uh, being debated, uh, and it includes a sizable amount of money for uh, different climate risk uh, related uh, act, uh, um, policies. You know, everything from subs more subsidy for electric vehicles to solar panels and you know, a bunch of different stuff. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what's your sense of that? Any perspective on the Build Back Better? I mean, is it something if you were a senator in the U.S. Congress, would you would you vote for it? Uh, well, that's that's an easy one. Yes, I'm, I'm yes. big uh, on investment in infrastructure. Um, one of the most interesting uh, things that I've seen in that bill is the $47 billion going to resilience and adaptation investments. So this is not about EVs or reducing emissions. This is really about preparing ourselves for the impacts, again, sea level rise and storms and wildfires that we're seeing already across the U.S. And then I think a lot of the, uh, there's a lot more in the spending bill that's going to come in terms of uh, carbon emissions. So we need to see where what happens with that one. Hey, Chris and Ryan, uh, any questions for Emily while, while, while you have her? I mean, anything that I missed that you're dying to ask? Um, any any pushback? Is there anything she said? <laughs> oh, I was hoping she was going to end on a positive note. Oh, no, we usually yeah. like try to end on an upbeat note. Doesn't sound yeah, like can we be that. upbeat, uh, yeah. Emily? Come on, give us just yeah. try it, please. Give us, give us, <laughs> give us a bone. So, 
sorry, that's not part of my job description. <laughs> no, I, you know, okay. I think we can do it. We've got, you, you said it earlier, Mark, right? There's commitment from the market. There's technology. Um, we can't just rely on a silver bullet, but there is technology improvements. Okay, good news. We can make water out of thin air. Isn't that a cool, <laughs> a cool technology? Cool. You can have that. water panels, like solar panels, and you get the humidity and you create water in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that was kind of thin, but okay, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but you know, I, I, I tend to be optimistic about this kind of thing because, uh, I've seen big problems, you know, as you can tell, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I've been around a while and we've had our share of problems you know, leading up to climate risk. And, you know, when push comes to shove, uh, we somehow, some way, I can't quite figure it out. Uh, we come together and we solve the problem. Uh, and I suspect that's going to be the case here. That we we don't know what technology technological changes are dead ahead of us, uh, but uh, you know, the technology tends to bail us out, particularly when we put our mind to it. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, 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 you know, I think it's it's prudent to be uh, cautious and think about the downside because that could, that gets you moving on trying to solve these problems. But I, my, at the end of the day, I think we're going to figure out a way around this. I wish we would tax carbon though because if we did that and really light a fire under people to you know figure right, out it would make technology alternative technology a lot more attractive yeah, so yeah exactly. let's invest in technologies yes, let's do it. <laughs> we can okay. do this well we'll, we'll think uh, oh, i'm sorry ryan did, did you was there anything you wanted to ask emily no okay no, Chris, no, anything I missed? something positive oh yeah that's right <laughs> yep emily uh chris anything you wanted to ask emily well just on the last note uh my yeah. question was are we better off actually uh, investing in technology, putting those uh, dollars that we're pledging to research and question. all sorts yeah. of uh, uh, pledges around uh, carbon targets, is society better off just taking that and plowing it into more research and development, right? Are we trying to work with current solutions that maybe are far less efficient than something new? I think usually there's a mix of both, um, and I don't think it's an either or, right? We need to use what we have because we need reductions now, and we need to invest because we need to do more in the future. So um, there's, there's both. Very diplomatic, thank you. Yeah, very, very nicely done. Very nicely <laughs> no, I mean it. I'm not trying to like, make people done. happy. That was a very Doritos response. Uh, that's yeah, why I liked very, it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, you guys might have noticed I didn't uh, advertise my Twitter handle this time, but I'm going to do it now at Mark Zandi. I'm on Twitter. Emily, are you on Twitter? Yes, at Imatsakurati. <laughs> I am definitely going to follow you. I need to follow you. Uh, so I'm going to do it. But only if you follow me, Emily. Of course, one. Mark. You're my first. <laughs> you're my next okay. kid on Twitter. Uh, that's so funny. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It was a really uh, a very informative conversation. A little depressing, but you know that's the nature of the beast here. So, uh, but thank you again. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to call this a podcast. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>